I agree. <laughs> the peace of Christ be with you. As we gather in this place, give yourself about three deep breaths so that you can fully arrive here, so that you can open up to the presence of the Holy Spirit. Friends, let us worship in beloved community. Good morning. Standing or sitting, let us join in the call to worship. In times clear and cloudy, when life presents us moments of decision, God can present us with wisdom and insight, loyal companions and angels to guide us. In hope and trust, let us open ourselves. Let us worship in body, mind, and heart. be seated. Welcome. Welcome to Westminster. It's good to be worshiping together today. I hope as you came in, you smelled the brunch smells that are emanating from our kitchen. Uh, after worship, you are invited to our pancake brunch, which is hosted by our high school youth. Uh, 
If you're visiting with us, a special welcome to you. The brunch is a great place to get to know one another. Uh, when you're there, maybe sit at a table with someone you haven't yet met and, or don't know very well and strike up a conversation. Let's join together now in our community prayer. Let us pray. God of our lives, in you we find our stories. In and through our stories we find you. We honor the narratives that have shaped and your transforming and sustaining spirit. We seek to honor stories not often told, hidden figures who have come before. We pay tribute to those who have had to endure morally complex and compromising situations. We ask forgiveness for any such complexities we have helped to create for others. We receive your grace with humility and deepened faith. Amen. Our prayers continue in quiet. Amen. Friends, know that our God is a God of unconditional love and compassion and grace. And know that in Christ we are forgiven. We are made new. Thanks be to God. Amen. So as we continue with our time of prayer, uh, this is our time of joys and concerns where we share with each other the prayers that are on our hearts and minds. I'll start with one, one of our beloved members who has moved, Mildy Whedon, has been a part of our congregation for a long time. And uh, this past week she moved down to the South Bay to be closer to her daughter, Pat. Um, and so we uh, hold her in her, our prayers as she gets used to her new home. Elizabeth Merriman has made a beautiful card for Mildy. Um, there you go. If you, if you find Elizabeth after worship, you can add your name to a card that we'll send her. In addition, if you want to send Mildy one of your own notes, um, out in the narthex we have little slips of paper with Mildy's new address on it. So you're welcome to take one of those um, and, and send Mildy a note anytime. That, uh, just to let her know that you're thinking of her. Um, so we certainly hold Mildy in our prayers. And Bonnie, I have to recognize you so faithfully brought Mildy to church every single week for so long and just... Yeah, I know that coming to church today must have felt different for you without Mildy in the car with you. So prayers for you as well, and prayers of thanksgiving for how well you have, have served and cared for her. Other joys or concerns to share. Yeah, Gwen. Yes, yes. Uh, so uh, Gwen was offering thanks. We had our Westminster Women's Retreat this past weekend up at Santa Sabina. Reverend Brooke Scott was our facilitator. A really joyous time. And I'm sure I heard in there, Gwen, an invitation already to next year for, for women to join us. It really was a great time to be together. Yeah, Rob.
the Fowler's family friends whose young daughter was recently diagnosed with cancer. Yeah, Barb. Absolutely, yeah. Continuing prayers for the people of Ukraine and Russia. Others? Yeah. All right, let's have a few moments of quiet, and then I'll lead us in the Lord's Prayer. So let us be in prayer together. Gracious God, you hear the prayers of your people. And hear us now as together we pray the prayer that your Son taught us, saying, Our who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And it is not into temptation deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I heard this text read at many memorial services and for years I thought about it and I even sung some choral arrangements of it. But in 2018 this melody and chord progression
We have a tradition of recognizing birthdays on the third Sunday of every month with a blessing. So if you have a birthday in October, or if you missed a birthday blessing in a previous month, I invite you to come forward. Right, and I invite you to just sort of line up along the front here and turn so everyone can see you. Excellent. Look at all these October birthdays. Wow. They just keep on coming. Although, well, come on up. That's absolutely good. All right. Yeah, that's fine. You can stand in front of one another. That's okay. No. All right. So I wanted to share with you all a poem. And those of you who are young, your parents are going to love that I'm sharing this with you. The poem's titled Stubborn. It's by a pastor, a Presbyterian pastor down in the South Bay, Bruce Ray's Chow. And he writes, ignore lips that whisper, stop being stubborn. Stubbornness born of faith is determination and disruption made real. So as you go, be stubborn. Be stubborn for hope. Be stubborn for wholeness. Be stubborn for justice. Be stubborn with courage. Be stubborn with kindness. Be stubborn with conviction. Be stubborn in love. Be stubborn with love. Be stubborn for love. Be stubborn for others around you. Be stubborn for those yet to come. And give thanks for ancestors and saints who were stubborn before you. So happy birthday to each one of you, and may this year be filled with the right kind of stubbornness. Amen. Well, I invite any who want to stay up here for the time of discovery. Doesn't matter the age. And those that would prefer to return to your seats are welcome to return to your seats. And I invite any of the other children worshiping with us today. Oh, my gosh, I'm getting, I'm getting heckled by the back row. What do you all have? My goodness, that sure, well, that sure looks tasty. Goodness gracious. So good, I can't wait. All right, thank you. <laughs> now that that's gonna come after Sunday straw. All right, so I was thinking the other day about 
how I probably too often take people for granted. Have you ever done that? And what I mean by that is someone does something really kind or loving and I'm just kind of, I, I don't really notice or I just kind of, you know, kind of pass over it. Um, and I don't really give them the, the attention or the gratitude or the thanks um, that, I would, that I would like to. Um, you know, I was thinking like the members of my family do so much um, to, for our house. They do so much just to bring me joy in my life. But I'm not sure I really you know, say thank you enough to them or tell them how much I appreciate them. Um, so I was thinking about, do any of you have teachers at school um, that like when you turn in something really good or they're really happy with it, they put a, like a sticker on your paper? Do, do teachers still do that? Yeah, kind of? No? Oh. I used to love a good sticker from my teacher. <laughs> Rob says, because you always got them. <laughs> no? Okay, so, so if you're not familiar with this custom, um, so like if you turn in something your teacher really enjoys or is really proud of, the extra maybe effort you've put into it, I used to sometimes get a sticker on my paper. I loved it. So I was thinking, why couldn't we and why should we? I think we should do that in our lives. So I have these sticker sheets here. And I was thinking what we could do is I'll give one to each of you and just sort of keep it, keep it with you. And if someone in your life does something you know, that's kind or loving or something that you really appreciate, you could give them a sticker. Some of these say, great job, or yay, or excellent, or wonderful. Some of these are cats, top cat. I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> but no, they don't say bad things. It's only positive, encouraging. <laughs> Positive, encouraging, uplifting messages as a way to just say, thank you. I really appreciate your presence in my life. I really appreciate what you bring to my life. Maybe someone makes you laugh or whatever it might be. So we're going to head out to the, the lobby, the narthex out there. I'm going to hand them out out there. And then we'll head to Sunday school, all right? Go now in peace. Go now in peace. Today's two readings tell one story. The first is from Joshua, chapter 2, verses 1 through 24, and the second continues several chapters later. Listen for what the Spirit is saying. Then Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and spent the night there. The king of Jericho was told, some Israelites have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out those men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come only to search out the whole land. But the woman took the two men and hid them. Then she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when it was time to close the gate at dark, the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you can overtake them. 
She had, however, brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men pursued them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. As soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before they went to sleep, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that dread of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we heard it, our hearts failed, and there was no courage left in any of us because of you. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. Now, since I have dealt kindly with you, swear to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal kindly with my family. Give me a sign of good faith that you will spare my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. The men said to her, Our life for yours. If you do not tell this business of ours, then we will deal kindly and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us the land. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the outer side of the city wall, and she resided within the wall itself. She said to them, Go towards the hill country so that the pursuers may not come upon you. Hide yourself there for three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go on your way. The men said to her, We will be released from this oath that you have made us swear to you if we invade the land and you do not tie this crimson cord in the window through which you let us down, and you do not gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your family. If any of you go out of the doors of your house into the street, they shall be responsible for their own death, and we shall be innocent. But if a hand is laid upon any who are with you in the house, we shall bear the responsibility for their death. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be released from this oath that you have made us swear to you. She said, according to your words, so be it. She sent them away, and they departed. Then she, then she tied the crimson cord in the window. They departed and went into the hill country and stayed there for three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers had searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men came down again from the hill country. They crossed over, came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given us all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before us. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring the woman out of it and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought Rahab out along with her father, her mother, her brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought all her kindred out and set them outside the camp of Israel. They burned down the city. 
and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her, Joshua spared. Her family has lived in Israel ever since, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Friends, this is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. Some of you may remember from a couple of weeks ago when I did the time of discovery with the children, I shared with them that Sherry's stepmother lived in the path of Hurricane Ian. And as a result of that storm, she lost everything. Car, her house, the structure is still standing but will likely have to be knocked down, and everything in it. And part of the everything in it is all the family pictures, which means in her family most of the remaining relics of her father, who died over 25 years ago. It's just all gone. I tell you that example as a way to make tangible just how important those things are that link us to those who came before us. We spoke last week about the importance of lineage, inherited and chosen. And these things that tie us to those who came before are important because they tell us not only who they were, but they tell us who we are. That's why we're doing this three-week series on Jesus' grandmothers, on three of the women who make an appearance in Matthew's genealogy that begins the gospel of Matthew. That's the foundation of that gospel as an accounting of, it's a chosen genealogy, chosen to be told in a certain way as well about where Jesus came from and therefore where we come from. It's remarkable, by the way, that Matthew includes women at all. That wouldn't have been an expectation. That's not how they understood their genealogies to flow. It was a patriarchal society. And even more remarkable are the three women that Matthew chooses. Tim Hughes-Williams, who's a pastor in Baltimore, uh, points out that there would have been far more obvious candidates were the author of Matthew simply concerned with lifting up exemplary or notable women in the Hebrew Bible. What about Sarah, for example, or Rebecca, or Rachel? Any number of women would have fit the bill. Why these three women that we're talking about, and there are more in the genealogy, Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba. There are interesting ties among them, not the least of which is that each of them is either foreign or married to a foreigner. Now there's your first lesson. That's notable in a culture that understands its identity primarily through bloodline. And Matthew wants to tell you, as he makes a case for Jesus being the Messiah, that he comes from a people that identify through the bloodline, and Matthew tells you from the very beginning that flowing through Jesus' veins is foreign blood. That's interesting. Well, there's a lot that's interesting about this story, but let's take a step back and just recap like we did last week because these stories are unfamiliar even to many churchgoers. So let me just distill it 
into what's important for today's purposes, at least. Israelites are coming to take new territory. They're invading Canaan, and they've come to the city of Jericho. Now, how they take this land, and frankly, if they took this land in this way at all, is told differently even within the canon of Scripture. It's told differently in different places. Beyond that, if you look to extra-biblical or just historical sources, you'll find different information altogether. Well, all of that raises a whole set of issues, and we're not going to be able to deal with them today. So we'll just name them and hold them off to the side. To the side. Let's just take this story on its own terms. They come to the city of Jericho, which they're going to take. They send spies ahead to do some advance work. The spies come to a prostitute's house named Rahab. The king catches wind of what's happening, orders Rahab to produce the men. She refuses or says she doesn't have them, hiding them in a pile of flax on the roof. She says to them, I know who you are. And I know who your God is and what your God has done freeing you from captivity and giving you this new land. So I will protect you. And I want you to flee from here and go up into the hills for three days until your pursuers give up. But when you come in return, I want you to promise that you'll spare me and you'll spare my family. And the men agree. And... They say, well, here's what you need to do. You take this crimson cord and hang it out of your window, and so when the invaders come, the soldiers will see it, and they will spare you and your household. And that's precisely what happens. Now, that little story is full of connections to other stories and hints at meanings, and it's full of really suggestive imagery that should also spark some questions as well as some answers for us. So let's go through just a few of them, just four of them. First, let's talk about sex as the congregation wakes back up. Okay. <laughs> sex is a thread that runs through the stories of Jesus's grandmothers and so many others, and sex in particular from a position of vulnerability. Remember back to last week, Tamar has to take on the role of a prostitute in hiding in order to secure the offspring promised by the family into which she marries, the family that fails her time and again. And Rahab is a prostitute by trade, by definition a position of vulnerability, rarely a trade chosen by people who have many other choices. It's a vulnerable way and dangerous way to make your living. Next week, we'll talk about Bathsheba, who is not a prostitute, but also doesn't have much choice because she's taken by King David, the most powerful man in the kingdom, who decides he wants her, even though she's already married and she has little or no say in the matter. Again, sex is this thread of vulnerability that runs through these stories. It's interesting to look at these ancient stories in our modern setting because even in our era of Me Too and hard-fought battles over abortion, we can see that throughout all of history just how dangerous sex has been for women. And yet, in so many ways, women are asked to use their sex to make their way in the world. 
And stranger still, the stigma attached to sex often clings more firmly to women than it does to men. And we heard about Tamar repeatedly being called a whore last week and Rahab the prostitute. That's how she's known in this story. I quoted a pastor last week who talks about the women's inclusion in this story is despite their sin or because of their sin to show God's grace, their sin. Which men on a mission from God can't seem to make it one day before stopping at a prostitute's house? Seems questionable among the spies. Right? But we all know in their era and ours where the stigma sticks. Secondly, the image of three days in the hills to hide, to emerge to something new. That motif comes up time and again. You've got Jonah and the, don't say it, don't you say it. It's not a whale. It's the big fish. Jonah is in, in the belly of the big fish for three days and then emerges. Who else? Always the right answer in seminary or on Sunday morning. Jesus is in the belly of the earth for three days after being crucified. And in all those cases, the person that emerges after the three days emerges to new life. Not just for themselves, but for the people. Something is happening in this story where there is a new reality for the people. What enables the soldiers to avoid, recognize which house it is they need to avoid? That crimson cord, that thread, you could say. And maybe it strikes something and you see that thread running through other stories. Maybe you were here last week and you remember the crimson thread where it showed up in that story too. We didn't talk much about it, but at the end of the story of Tamar, she gives birth to twins. And when the first babe is trying to come out, what they do is they tie a, a crimson thread around its, its arm or its leg, I can't recall. Presumably because they're trying to identify birthright, which was critical in that culture. Right? Crimson thread running through these stories. Something about God's activity at work. Maybe that makes you think of other stories in the Hebrew scriptures. Perhaps the Passover story when the people of Israel were still slaves and God was trying to free them by pressuring the people of Egypt and so sends the angel of death to them. That's going to sweep over the villages. But the Israelites are instructed to smear what? the crimson blood of the lamb on the door, and God will recognize it, and God will not wage war on that house, and the angel of death will pass over them, much like this story. Maybe you're thinking of uh, the river that's turned to blood in the same cause. Maybe you're thinking of all the blood that flows throughout all the sacred stories, including Jesus' own. Jesus, who is named for whom? Joshua. Jesus' name was Yeshua, Joshua, Yeshua. That's who he's named for, or at least whose name he shares. Think of that, a warrior whose stories are blood-soaked. His bloodline produces the Prince of Peace, who spills his own blood to prevent us from spilling each other's blood. I'll preach. 
How is it the soldiers can see the crimson cord so easily? I mean, you got a whole city you're invading. How did they know to, to look for every window? Where was her house? It was in the wall. You see, the walls weren't just one sort of slab. It was two walls, really, with some space in between. And in ancient cities, what they would do is they would use that space in between for storage, or in times of battle, they would fill it with rubble as fortification, or they used it as what I'll call low-income housing. Certain kinds of people lived in the wall, people like Rahab. And so when she hangs the cord out the window, it's out the window of the outer wall fortifying the city. And that image is a perfect image for Rahab stationed in life. It signifies her betweenness. She doesn't belong in the center of the city. Her activity is the kind that you undertake on the edges, if you know what I mean, under the cover of dark. She also doesn't belong to those on the outside, really. She's not of their bloodline. She is stationed squarely in between two worlds. And it's important to remember that vulnerable, trapped position as well when we're tempted to judge her, because if you look at it on face value, there's plenty to judge. She's a traitor, right? She sold out her people. If you told that story from their perspective, she would be no hero. So why would she do that? Well, Hughes Williams points us to Amy Robertson, who's a Jewish scholar, and this is what she says about Rahab and her relationship to her city. She writes, Rahab clearly has very little reason to feel a vested interest in the city of Jericho as it is. She's tolerated there but is far enough outside the mainstream Canaanite society to be able to envision something else for herself. Perhaps this vision in the sense that she has little to lose by bringing about change helped move her to risk what she had. There's always so much risk in these stories. In order to see what else could be. Now, she's revered by the Israelites Right? She's a hero. But think about it. Even for them, she's only valuable because she's useful to them. Because she fulfills their needs like a good prostitute does. She's not really valued by either, and she's trapped by both. What do we do with that story? Part of what we do is recognize that there are people in our world and in our history too because of the way we've lived or the way we tell our stories are likewise trapped in a reality hardly of their choosing. Or they're erased altogether. They're encased in a wall of sorts or they're erased. Or at least the color of their story comes from some other artist's palette. It wasn't their own. And so part of what we can do, as that song that Ruthie offered at the anthem so beautifully illustrated, is remember them. And in doing so, you remember them to the community. You bring them back in and lift them up and honor the fullness of their life. And in doing so, we teach one another to honor the fullness of those in our midst.
It's autumn. And in many places of the world, some of you were just in the northeast and saw the leaves changing. Oh, in many places, that's what you associate with autumn. And in a few places around here, you can catch glimpses of it. And as you know from your elementary school science, when the leaves change from green to all the beautiful colors of the rainbow, it's not that they're changing colors, it's that their true colors are coming out and the shroud of green withdraws. It's a moment of revelation. I think part of what this story invites us to do is to lift the veil on those stories narrowly told or not told at all so that their real colors can shine forth in all their beauty and all their diversity. So we're going to engage in a bit of a ritual now that will last from now into Advent. You'll see around the sanctuary already there are these streamers that the worship committee dutifully put up on these poles and a few autumn leaves to spark your imagination. In a moment, we'll pass out bunches of those and pens or markers if you don't have them. And we're going to invite you in the minute of quiet, in just a minute of quiet, but throughout the rest of the service, to write names either of individuals, hidden figures, so to speak, who've been forgotten or misremembered, or of groups of people or the kinds of people whose stories have not been fully told. You'll write them, take as many as you want, write them, and then at the end of the service when you leave, you can just set them in one of the baskets by the door and we'll put them up through the week. Maybe it's Tuesday this week and a new name comes to you. When you come down to the church, there'll be a basket. You can write more names or you can sit in here and pray surrounded by the stories of those we haven't appropriately remembered. And we'll leave this up all the way until Advent, so there'll be time. So in a moment, uh, before, as we ring the chime, we'll come down and we'll pass some of those out to you. If you're a Disney family, you'll, you'll, and you've, you watch the film in Canto, you'll catch the reference, we don't talk about Bruno, a song that was very popular this fall, especially among young people. It's a story about, and Bruno is a character in this story, who lives in the walls of a house. And the rule is we don't talk about him. Well, we may not be able to talk about Bruno, but it's our job to talk about Rahab. Lest all the photographs and stories and letters about her are washed away in the storm of our cultural amnesia and selective memory. She had a name. Remember it. Her name was Rahab. She was the 30th great-grandmother of Jesus. Amen.
pray. Good and gracious God, we thank you for this time to gather together in your name and for stories of strong women whose faith and courage inspired us to this day. Accept these offerings from your faithful here at Westminster and grant us the wisdom to be good stewards of these gifts and of all that you have blessed us with. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> this time I invite Rob Adkins forward to offer a moment for stewardship. <clears throat> Good morning. I think I know all of you. Hi, Mimi. Um, but I'm Rob Adkins. Uh, our family have been members at this church for quite some time. My wife, Rachel, we have three uh, teenage kids. Uh, Maria, Wilson, and Sam. Uh, you'll note in your bulletins that um, this moment of stewardship is to be brought to you by the entire Adkins Ruffalo family, and yet here I am by myself. Um, you'd be forgiven for thinking that perhaps my kids were still asleep, which is unfortunately sometimes true um, on the weekend, but here is not. Uh, uh, you may have noticed Maria, she's the one that came forward with the plate of delicious pancakes. Uh, they're busy getting ready for the pancake uh, lunch that we're all going to enjoy um, in just a little bit. So they have that excuse. But it affords me a, a, a very rare indulgence as a parent, which means that I get to stand up here and talk about my family, and in particular my kids, without being corrected or being told that I'm embarrassing or cringy. <laughs> And so what, what I wanted to share with, with all of you in, in this moment of stewardship is um, about the journey for our family and what this church means to us and, and why it's so important to support it. And part of that is because, um, in a very literal sense, our family has grown up in this church. Uh, we moved here to uh, Marin in 2011. Uh, our first time in, in church, in this room, was uh, Rob's second uh, sermon, Rob's second Sunday here at the church. So we've literally overlapped almost entirely um, with his time here. Um, and as I've, you know, I, I mentioned this to Rachel this morning, but it's, it's true, is that if you were to describe in one sentence, you know, what our journey at this church has been, it would be that we, we came for the sermons, but we stayed for the love and the community. That's not to suggest the sermons got worse over time. What I mean is that the, that we, it became a deeper and more meaningful journey for us, um, not only uh, you know, with respect to the sermons and literally in church, but, but outside of it. Um, and in describing that journey, um, there are a lot of things that we could talk about in terms of how it manifests itself you know, for our family or for yours. Um, and that turns into a list of things, like the Reclaim Weekend, which is great, or uh, the mission trip, uh, or uh, our daughter served um, as one of the elders, and my wife's one of the deacons, and there's plenty of those that you could talk about, but at least as I was reflecting on what the church means to us, um, there's a deeper uh, meaning to that for us, I think, than those list of things, and at least for us, uh, it's this, that this church meets all of us, um, including the children, where they are. And Jeff Shankle does a better job explaining this than I do, and he was joking with me just uh, before the service um, as they're getting ready for the, the pancake lunch that I said, I'm going to talk about a little bit about your youth program. He said, make sure you tell them we don't have a youth program, which is true. And what he means by that is 
Youth programs are, are in, at their worst, can sometimes be an indoctrination of sorts. You bring the kids into a program, you teach them what it is they're supposed to do, and then what tends to happen is once they go off or in the college or whatever their life takes them to, it doesn't really bring them back to a spiritual journey. Sort of packaged, and then it's gone. And that's not what this church does, or at least our experience has been. Um, they meet us in where they are in their real lives. I'll give you two examples, uh, just quickly. One humorous and one not. Um, the first one, our son, Wilson, uh, runs track uh, at Tam High School, and he was sitting there in the middle of the field with his friends during a track meet, um, and he hears a voice behind him, and he says, hey, Wilson, he turns around, and it's Jeff Shankle. He's there at Wilson's track meet, unannounced, and he's got a bunch of boba drinks with him. Wilson and all of his friends, none of whom attend this church, I don't believe, uh, were handed uh, drinks, and, and Jeff carried out a conversation with him. Now, as a 15-year-old, that'd be awful if I was there, but having Jeff there must have been a surprise. Where his father was at his track meet, I don't know, but this was a this is an example of the kinds of things that, that Jeff does. Uh, he, I don't know if you know this, but you know, pre-COVID, he used to go over to the middle school with donuts. It, being outside this building, being in their lives, where they're actually living their life, um, I think is important. And it's not just Jeff. Um, there's lots of examples. Mimi taking you know, Maria and her friend you know, uh, and others, Muriel, to uh, lunch or to tea. Uh, hemp getting into conversations after service uh, about the 49ers with Wilson. Um, Lisa, like a lifelong friend of ours, um, as dear and close to our family as we can have, but there's a relationship through this church that's different and that's meaningful and is deeper, and that's meeting them where they are. Um, the second example, um, because that sense of community is not just for uh, joyous moments, um, but also for somber and difficult ones. We'll all, of course, remember the the Parkland school shootings from several years ago, one of a terrifyingly long list of, of these types of incidents that affect our children, of course, um, in ways, and on all of us. Um, you may recall, and this was several years ago when, when that occurred, but that a lot of the students in the high schools um, in the Marin area were going to go out on a protest, um, which would involve, you know, to protest gun violence in the schools, and it involved leaving their classrooms, and they were told by the administration that that would lead to an unexcused absence. This church in the session came together and approved a letter to be sent out to say that this was a spiritual effort by the children and therefore should be excused. It's meeting the children, I think, where they really live that, that is meaningful. So I, we all just got those leaves uh, that, that everybody handed out, and I was writing on mine. I, I wrote on one of those leaves, teenagers, just now, because in a real sense, they, they are bracketed, they are encased, or at least have a, we project upon them a certain narrative that isn't maybe their own. And to sum it up, that's, that's not what our church does. You know, we meet them where they are. And so I, I would just encourage each of you to think about how the church meets you where you are, the value in that, and then to consider how you can give to support continuing that in our community. So thank you very much. Thank you, Rob. I, I got to tell you, the first week was the best. It was actually downhill after, so you've gotten the, uh, I can send it to you. As Rob indicated, there, there is a lot that's going on in this community, and I know many of you are hungry, having smelled the bacon throughout the service, so I will not stand between you and your pancake breakfast. I will be as brief as is responsible. 
I do hope you stick around and enjoy not only the meal, but the fellowship that will be a part of that. And in doing so, you can support our youth ministry, not program. Um, another chance to eat, break bread together, and build relationships. You probably saw on the way in, the small group dinners are the signups for the fall are out, and you've got an insert in your bulletin. This is a great way, people say this all the time, that the way they first met their friends in the church was attending a small group dinner. You go to someone's home, often with people you do not know, you have a very pleasant and casual uh, conversation, a friendly chance to get to know each other on deeper levels, and one thing leads to another and you're more deeply plugged into the church. So you have a list of hosts for those dinners and dates and locations, and we'd love it if everybody signed up. It's a great way to get integrated into the church, and my thanks to Congregational Life for all the work they've done in organizing that. Third, there will be a congregational meeting on October 30th. By constitution, we have to announce that a couple of weeks in advance. Uh, it, nothing of um, uh, any controversy here. We simply have to uh, approve three elders to replace elders who had to leave before their terms expired. So we've got a slate of candidates to fulfill that. It's a joyful occasion. Um, as well as a couple of additional members to the nominating committee, who is already, really, hard at work for next year's slate of elders, deacons, and folks to do our financial review. So October 30th, at the end of this service, it will be quite brief, I anticipate, but we need a quorum, so please come, or the action will not count. And finally, as I mentioned, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, on November 13th, from 4 to 5, though you can get here as early as 3.30, as part of our ongoing Westminster events initiative, where we're trying to host more things that would be engaging to the public, I will be interviewing somebody that I described before as one of the most interesting people I've ever spoken to. And I really mean that. When I had the chance to sit with him for over an hour, it was a really fascinating uh, person, neighbor right in our backyard, and I'm happy to tell you who that is some other time, all right? <laughs> Building a little bit of tension here. Watch your e-news, and you'll see it. But mark your calendars. You will not want to miss it. And with that, our closing hymn is number 
as in a weary world, the promised feast of plenty comes. The tree shall clap the hands, the dry lands gush with springs, the hills and mountains shall break forth with singing. We shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace as all the world in Now as you go out from this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God who is Father and Mother to us all, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you this day, be with you every day. Amen.